Hey, good evening, church. Welcome to the table. Uh, my name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the pastors here at the table, and we're so grateful that you're still here with us. And by still, I think that's where the gratitude really lies. I mean, you guys, we set out on this pandemic thinking we we're doing a brief detour, take a few weeks off of church, and yet here we are vastly approaching a year into this deal, and we're still uh, not physically together. But we get to do this, um, and I am grateful for this medium. I'm not going to complain about it one bit. Hey, listen, if this is your first time with us, allow me just to provide you with a basic orientation introduction as to what we're about to get into. This is the part of the worship program where we take our stories and try to root them inside of the scriptural story in hopes that something in the scripture will have something to say to our stories. We do this every week and we follow the leading of the lectionary, which is this way that the collective church, the big C church made up of all the little C churches can kind of like look at similar texts, be in a similar conversation so Christians can be in cahoots together as opposed to always biting each other's necks. It's not a, it's a welcomed alternative. The reason why I am uh, not with Christian and Debbie tonight, I was like, that's their names, Christian and Debbie. The reason why I'm not at the church right now with Christian and Debbie and asked them instead in this white chair in my bedroom is because um, I'm fine. I'm not sick. That, that's not the reason this week. The reason, though, is because I started to read the text for this week last Sunday, and I was a mess. I mean, it, I, this doesn't happen every week for me where I'm reading the text, and I'm like just so moved by it, and I don't really know if it's a good moving or a bad moving. I just I was looking at 1 Corinthians 8, where we're going to get to at some point here, um, and it was speaking so loudly to me. It, it, there was such a deep resonance. It was powerful. It was disturbing. It was challenging. It was pregnant. And so what had happened then was that I, I did a deep dive on Monday and went deeper still on Tuesday. Got all tangled up on Wednesday. Found out on Thursday that I am homiletically ill-equipped to untangle some of these tangles. So I told the crew that I'm not ready to present on this passage whatsoever. It's Saturday afternoon right now. I still don't know if I'm all the way where I need to be, but I don't want to lose my job. And so I'm going to give you a glimpse as to where I intend to go. But let me just start first with a story. A couple years ago, I went to a Sundance Film Festival. Heard of it? <laughs> now, I'm not, you know, like trying to come across like I'm better than you for being there. I mean, if the evidence would suggest so, then I'm not going to stand in its way. But that's not the point. I went to this with a, a class at seminary uh, um, on film and theology and everything in between. And um, wasn't actually even that excited about going when I heard about the trip. Just because I'm not really like a big indie film guy. Like, I'll do the obligatory, oh, I like Eternal Sunshine of the Mind, or whatever that movie's called, but nobody likes that movie. So that's not me. I wasn't, like, juiced about it. But then I got there, and it was pretty awesome. I mean, all of these films were orienting around the conversation of social justice and liberation, and specifically talking about race and prejudice and um, what's a better way forward for all of us. On one particular morning, there was a film that was made on what had happened in Ferguson. I believe it was called Whose Streets? And uh, the creators of that film, after the film, they got a large group of us together and we had a conversation. They wanted to have this big group conversation on race and faith. And, and they wanted to ask questions like, is there a future where the church will will not hinder but actually help liberation movements like Black Lives Matter? Is there a way that that is possible in the tomorrows that we hold? And in the midst of this big conversation, two tables away from me, there was this black man who stood up and he asked for the microphone. And before one word came out of his mouth, there was tears that were falling down from both of his eyes. And as he tried to collect himself, he eventually got the mic to his mouth and he said, listen, I'm, I am uh, so sorry, this is hard. 
as a black man and, and as a Christian, I need to confess and let you know that I didn't want to be in any room with any Christians for a long time. Uh, I still don't feel completely comfortable. And it's really nothing personal. I just know that Christians have largely been silent about Black Lives Matter. And that's led me as a black man to wonder if Christians thought my life mattered. Uh, so I've wanted to stay away. But this is this morning, this space, it's been healing. As he is talking, as this man is cutting open a vein in this beautiful, prophetic, and, and vulnerable, brave way, I see this other man between myself and the man who is speaking, and this guy is sitting in a chair in front of me, and he pulls out his phone and he starts writing a text message. Now, I was not creeping, I was not snooping, it was none of my business, but he was probably 60-something years old, and so he had that size 68 font on his phone, and he was kind of holding it up and doing that like squint that, that some people do um, so I couldn't help but see what he's writing and he's writing this text message as this man is speaking and his text message says I should get an Oscar for my facial restraint right now all of this white guilt is pathetic now on the other side of the room after the man who was speaking stopped speaking uh, there was an older white woman who got up and before she started to speak, she also started to weep and she started to move towards the man who was speaking and she started to talk about um, her privilege and talk about how she has been sidelined for way too loud, how long, how she has uh, kept herself from being active in the game, even though she knew it was right, it just made her uncomfortable. So she stayed passive and quiet when she was called to be loud and bold and she was saying, I'm sorry. And it was, again, beautiful. And it was prophetic and it was so profound. And I was convinced that everyone in the room was being changed by that moment we were in. But then like Billy Big Font texter guy in front of me starts to text again. And he grabs his phone um, after the woman speaks about white privilege. And he starts to write another text message saying, white privilege. Are you kidding me? Do, do Democrats out there actually still think that's real? And then moments later, there were bubbles that popped up on his phone with the response said, do Democrats even think? Now, if I weren't such a snowflake, I could probably appreciate the comedic value in that response. But at this point, I was getting pretty fired up. At this point, I was about to get on my brass knuckles and I'm about to bounce on this dude because I'm just so disturbed by him. But he was twice my size. And so I decided I'm going to pray for him instead. But after that conversation, like I didn't just, I carried that room with me. I was so bothered and annoyed and angry, not so much by the fact that, that the texter didn't see eye to eye with this man, but more so by the fact that the texter did not see this man, that he completely dismissed his humanity because all he could hear was his position and it was, it was, it was against his own. This man was so entrenched in his party, in his ideology, that he could no longer see the person in pain that was standing right in front of him. And I was livid. And so I went to a bar. <laughs> and it was pretty empty because it was about 9 in the morning and people don't go to bars at 9 in the morning. But I was there and I was sitting there and I was um, stewing. And as I was stewing over this man who was making those texts, I started to think about who else am I angry at right now? I don't know if you guys have ever done like those rage it's not rage tweeting, like feeding. There's a term for it. I'm forgetting it right now where you're like, I just like, I want to be annoyed right now. So I'm going to look at all these things that bug me. I'm going to go to all the people who piss me off. I'm going to read what the stupid thing they said recently. I'm just going to feel that rage, which inevitably makes me feel like I'm right. And, and I was doing that in that bar on that morning. And I was going to Sean Hannity's 
Twitter profile, I was reading, you know, whatever, all these different things that are out there that are just absurd to me. And then I started to put faces in my head like, yeah, yeah, they're bad. He's awful. Oh, she is the worst. And as I am doing so, in this bar in Park City, Utah, in comes Little Miss Sunshine, Tommy Loren, the lead vocalist for the far right movement at this time. And so I, I grabbed my beer and I threw it at her and then I walked out. And uh, that was it. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't talk though. I wish like I could, uh, you know, give you a profound pastoral story where we, you know, had some amazing conversation that was redemptive and beautiful. And now we call each other every week just to say hi, but that's just not what happened. It, it didn't happen. Instead, what happened was when I saw her, I just thought about how, how, how do you sleep at night? L like knowing the ignorance that you perpetuate, knowing the violence that you incite, like how do you do what you do? How, how, how are you somebody who can be so entrenched in your party, in your position, that you completely dismiss the pain of the people? How do you look at those who are against you and only see their position but fail to see them as people? To which in that moment I could feel the spirit speaking up saying, you know what Matt, I was about to ask you that exact same thing. Because even if this girl is as crazy as you've convinced yourself she is, and even if you are right in all of your assessments of her positions, you're still wrong if you fail to see the person behind that position. This is important to think about when we think about sight because we tend to think that um, perception is a passive process. We think that if we are at all objective that we are just here recording what is actually here and yet perception is demonstrably an active rather than a passive process. It constructs rather than records. We construct how we choose to see the world. That's not saying that we, we experience totally different things, but we do embrace different aspects of things. For example, if you were to walk down a street in India and you were next to a Hindu man and a cow came across that road, you as an American who loves Fuddruckers cheeseburgers, you would look at that cow in a very different way than the Hindu man who sees that being as sacred. We are all constructing our perceptions to fit our positions in this world. And as an aid to our construction plans, as a means of trying to pin down some of the chaos and instability and the ambiguity and the uncertainty, we use labels in life. And that can actually be helpful. I'm not gonna get on the negative train quite yet when it comes to labels, rest assured it's coming. But labels, there is a place where they actually can serve as a constructive aid. I mean, there's a reason why even last week when I was feeling all sick and feeling symptoms, like I wasn't sure what was actually going on with me. There is a reason why I went to WebMD and typed in the little that I knew and took the first diagnosis as truth. Because I just needed something to hold on to, some framework, some container to put my current experience inside of so it wasn't just like bubbling all over the place with nothing that I could name. Labels can be helpful, especially considering that uncertainty can feel harmful. If ambiguity and uncertainty register in our body as pain, we are going to respond to that pain like we respond to all kinds of pain. We're gonna look for some relief, even if it's not good relief. We just need to put some kind of answer, some kind of organizing story around the thing to pin it down and put it in a cage. And so it really shouldn't be strange to us why people buy into QAnon or why that pandemic documentary went so wild. It made people's brains feel better. It made their ambiguity go away. Labels can be helpful for naming things, 
but they're not good at knowing things. That's where they can be harmful because labels can tend to stop you short when you were called to go all the way. Labels are shortcuts that keep you from being thoughtful and open and empathetic and curious and compassionate. They close you down. They keep you further away. They can keep you from leaning in because they just gave you an easy way out. Why get to know that life when you can put a label on them and know them by the bumper sticker in your mind? There's actually some research out there today that is really interesting. By interesting, I actually mean disturbing, but it's fascinating to me because what, what researchers are finding out is that if I were to present to you with a list of labels right now, and think about the big ones, uh, uh, conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, name your thing. There is a stronger recoiling that happens in response to the label than there is to the life behind it. We react more strongly to these labels, these shortcuts, than we do to the nuanced perspective of the life that we have slapped that label on. And so the question for me becomes when I hear research like that is, do, do we have the stomachs to actually take in one another's stories? To actually have the courage to step into somebody else's shoes, to recognize that it's not a world of black and white, but there is a lot of gray in here. Do we want to see that? One of the texts that has been on my mind, not 1 Corinthians 8, I promise we will get there, but has been in John 3, the encore to the John 3.16 text that you see at football games. And it's this text where it says, um, light has come into the world, but people loved the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. People loved the darkness. And when I grew up and I heard a text like that, I often would think about, oh, the people who love the darkness, because darkness clearly is evil, those are the people who watch porn, who listen to ICP, who um, own Robin Hood, and there are the hedge fund homies, if you will. Uh, and there might be some pieces of truth in that, but, but what if the people who love the darkness isn't actually about evil. What if it's just people who prefer the dark because of the work that's involved in perceiving all that's in the light? What if people prefer the dark because it's exhausting to stare at the truth in the light? I mean, just consider the centuries of agony that black and brown family members of ours have been asking white people like me to pay attention to their pain and we've We've dismissed it, we've belittled it, we have downsized their pain to upgrade our own sense of convenience. We have preferred the darkness because we just don't know if we have the stomachs really to go all the way into the light. We don't know if we want to see all of that because what would that mean for all we are? It is hard to leave the dark and deal with what's real in the light, but do you know what might even be harder still? I think this is what actually was, was messing with me a whole week. Do you know what might be harder than leaving the dark and going into what's real in the light? is being in the light in dealing with those who will not join you. And that sounds arrogant, I understand that, but just try to stay with me, please. It, it is hard to put in the time and energy, the research, look into the scholarship, find a, a, a voices of accountability, go beyond the, the echo chamber. It is hard to have a position that you feel with sincerity and conviction that you have vetted and you, you hold it because you've objectively looked at it from every angle. It is hard to arrive at that place and deal with people who will not join you and deal with people who will not see the path that got you to where you are and deal with people who will not take a chance on believing that there is more for them in the light than there is in the smallness of the dark. It is hard to be convinced that you are right and confronted by people who just don't really care. Don't care. 
This is actually the frustration that the people in Corinth are trying to figure out. Context. There's this debate that's happening in the Corinthian church. Now, we don't know the, all the details, but we know that there was a, a letter that Paul wrote to them initially. So our first Corinthians letter is not actually the first letter written to the Corinthians. There was another exchange. And in the response to the first letter sent, the people said like they had some big questions about some problematic things that were happening in the community. One of the things that was that was splitting up the community, one of the debates that was tearing like families apart and rupturing all of these relationships, it came down to this question of if the only meat that we have to pick up the market was previously sacrificed to a pagan god, can we still have that pork sandwich? Can we still have some ribeye the night? Can we still eat a burger? Because there are some people in our church community who don't feel comfortable with doing so, and there are others of us who do. And the ones who did feel comfortable, the ones who had no problem, no qualms with eating meat still, they had really put the time in to define their why. They had put the time in to, to get to where they eventually did God. They, they went to the whiteboard, they went to the lab, they laid it all out, they did the math, they did this, they did that, and they reached a conclusion that they found through objective reasoning, through um, communal dialogue. They put their heart and soul into reaching this answer, and their answer is right. They came to the point where they said, listen, here's the deal. Even if that food was sacrificed to other gods, we know that this food was sourced by one God. And if there's only one God, then there are no other gods. And so I'm not going to revere these other gods by being worried about the meal if, if, it's, if it's giving uh, reverence to something that is not real. And so these people who have reached this conclusion, they're livid because we, you guys, we've shown you the data. We've done the math. We've laid out the X's and O's. Uh, We've, we've given you the facts on the ground. This is not fake news. We're talking about facts on the ground. We've given this to you. So why won't you come on board with us? Based upon what they have learned, they are demanding that everybody in the church gets on board with them. But Paul says what every good young life leader has ever said. Listen, they really don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. Stop expecting people to learn while withholding from people your love. Paul says this, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. The quotes, he's retweeting them here. This is from the earlier exchange that we no longer have a record of. He is quoting them. We know that all possess knowledge. We know that you know. We know that I get it. You're right. And Paul does. He stands by their perspective. He's like, yeah, I see the math. That is true. That's right. But then he says this, but this knowledge... Your rightness, your position, your, your, your fidelity to that position over your fidelity to people, that kind of knowledge, it puffs up. But love, that builds. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anybody loves God, he is known by God. Did you hear that? Paul says that in the kingdom of Christ that looks like the Christ, you can have done the right math. You can have landed in the soundest of all conclusions. You can have every reason to be confident that you are right. And yet you can still be wrong. How? Well, because you thought that making your point was the actual point. You forgot that the brain is a wonderful servant, but a terrible God. You forgot that unless your learning is in service to your loving, you might know a lot of things that are right, but you are still living in a way that is wrong. 
And now we're not talking about food being sacrificed to idols. We're talking about our friends that have been sacrificed to idols. We're talking about our family that has been sacrificed to idols. I mean, how many of you in the past year alone have had a relationship rupture because of two sets of dug-in heels, both convinced that they are right? Just me? You, too? I mean, for me, like, it's really, it's something I'm constantly trying to work on, and I think I'm getting better at it, but I have ruined relationships, or at least, like, changed relationships because I've insisted on my rightness over my relationship. And in the name of trying to bring some of these people in the dark out here with me into the light, I've had no problem with picking fights politically, picking fights theologically, morally, relationally, philosophically, all while forgetting the last four letters of those words. I have been guilty of being so obsessed with getting it right that I have lost my ability to actually give respect. Respect. Two words in one word. Re-inspect. Re-N-C. In that one word is this effort to take another look because the thing or the person before us is worth far more than the first impression that we got of them. Compassion and love dictate that we respect, we respect other human beings over and over and over because we are coming to realize our great capacity to totally and embarrassingly misread someone without taking the time to hear their backstory, despite the fact that we are desperately hoping that somebody will ask us for ours. Today, you and I, we are about 99% wrong about everyone we hold opinions about, and I actually believe that that number might be low. Compassion demands respect to see and then re-see and then re-re-see again and again until you know their name and you feel their story like you hope that someday they just might feel yours. If we can do that, if we can re-see again and again and continue our own work of leaving relational darkness behind and entering into the light of some kind of flourishing, perhaps then we will understand why it is that Jesus went town to town opening up blind eyes so that they could see. Paul says that if you continue to care more about what you know over how you love, you're going to be puffed up while everybody else is being pushed down. But if you want to love, then let the construction begin. Friends, I've said this 10,000 times. Don't mind me if I say it once more. The church is not dogma in search of obedience. The church is love in search of form. And as Jesus says, if you only love those who love you back, what are you actually building? We are a people who are called to love hard those who are hard to love because we believe that all people are better than the worst things that they do or the detestable positions that they hold. We're not giving up on one another. We're going to continue to re-see one another and maintain our grasp on their humanity so that we do not let go of our own. Now just to, as an asterisk before I close because I don't want to get an email this week. I'm not telling you to coddle stupid beliefs. Paul's not telling you to coddle and, and cuddle with bad beliefs. You should push back. Yes, Jesus was a shepherd to the sheep, but Jesus was also a hunter to the wolves. And it is on you to stand up when bad beliefs are, are pulling down good people, when bad beliefs are stepping on innocent lives. Not okay. It is on you to use your power of what you see and use it to say something about what we need. That's important. That's imperative. Do not hear me saying anything else. But I am also saying that you do not dehumanize the person that you disagree with on their positions. This is what makes revolutionaries like Jesus and King and Gandhi so remarkable. Do you know what, what really tied those three together more than almost anything else? They loved their perpetrators. 
King, who would continually in a non-pejorative way appeal to those being stepped on not to actually step back, to those who are holding so much pain to not hold hatred as well. You know what he called white people like me who were literally um, pushing back on him on every corner who ultimately were the ones responsible for him being dead? He called us his sick white brothers and sisters. He didn't say those people are rotten to the core demons that emerged from the earth. No, he said they fell sick. They caught a fever. And I'm going to be here to help them get better. I'm going to be here to remind them that they are human and that they don't have it all figured out and that I'm a human. I don't have it all figured out, but collective liberation is the aim and we need one another to get where we need to go. Making our positions and what we know the point is a profound exercise in missing the point because no one is defined by their knowledge or what they've accomplished and so nobody should live as if they were. And do you know how I know that? Because when our time is gone, when my time is done, the people who love me best, I know what they're gonna miss the most. They're not gonna miss these sermons, they're not gonna miss these lections. My wife is, my wife is not gonna, <laughs> I'm laughing because she could probably, make me stop right now on this um my wife's not going to miss like my late night diatribes about the church or or theological nitpicking that i can do from that she's just they're not going to miss that they're going to talk about when dad jumps onto the coffee table in the middle of dinner and starts singing queen with his shirt off they're going to talk about um <laughs> they're going to talk about all of the the messes that we've survived and the moments that we made they're going to talk about um, the way we treated one another. They're going to talk about the dances we did together. You and I, we're not going to be missed because of the lectures that we gave or the arguments we won. We're going to be missed because on one of the days when we're gone, one of our people is going to go through something and they're going to reach into their phone and they're going to want to call us because we were in there with them at one point, but they're going to find out that we're not there anymore. We're going to be missed because they're going to want to share a joy with us or ask us to carry a burden with them. And so one of the things I've thought about recently, especially when I read this text, I know I'm going long, I really apologize for that, but you know, when I first started out as a pastor four or five years ago, I, uh, I made a lot of people uncomfortable and uh, I was saying a lot of things specifically online that stepped on a lot of different toes. And I don't regret anything that I said, but I do have some regrets over how I said it. Um, but what I've learned over these years is uh, that it's very easy to be known for our opinions, but we're going to be remembered for our love. It's very easy to think that you are right because you're all of a sudden being puffed up, but you're going to be remembered for what you build. And so give your time to what will last. If you have to choose between being a teacher or a friend, be a friend. Be a friend. I love you guys. I'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for that message, Matt. What a good reminder that it's not about having all the answers or always being right, but it's about love that we are people called to love, not to be right, not to know it all. And I can't think of a time in our history where that resonates more than right now for me. 
because it's so easy to get caught up in, I know that this is the truth, or I am sure that this is a fact. But we need that reminder day in and day out that it's about love. It's about loving one another. It's about seeing the image of God in each other. That's the call in our lives. And the beauty of who we get to be as people who follow Jesus is we follow a God who is love, who calls us to love. And this God we celebrate every Sunday night when we break bread together. And that's when we celebrate Jesus. The night before Jesus died, he took bread, he broke it, and he said to his friends, his disciples, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and pouring wine into the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me. So that's what we do. We take the bread and we dip it into the cup, and as we place it into our mouth, we remember that we are people called to love, not to have all the answers, not to know, but to love one another. And so that's what we do. As you take that bread, hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you and his blood shed for you. Now together, let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.